Welcome to the Endeavor Award Podcast. The Endeavor Award celebrates the best book-length fantasy and science fiction works published by authors based in the Pacific Northwest. This episode features Erica L. Satifka, author of How to Get to Apocalypse and Other Disasters, and winner of the 2021 Endeavor Award. She joined me on Facebook Live, and this podcast is an edited version of that conversation. This is uh, the first in a series of Q&A uh, sessions with people associated with the Endeavor Award. Um, and uh, quite appropriately, we're starting out with uh, Erica mm -hmm. Satipka, who is the author of uh, How to Get to Apocalypse and Other Stories, or Other Disasters, which is a book of short stories, mm -hmm. which, uh, there it is, beautiful, uh, which won the 2021 uh, Endeavor Award. Uh, Erica is going to... Um, and just sort of answer a few questions about the book and her process. And uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the Endeavor Award some more. It's been around since 1999. It's for book-length uh, works of science fiction or fantasy by authors uh, based in the Pacific Northwest. And she is based in Portland. And um, the uh, award is right now is open for 2022 submissions. So if you, um, you are a publisher or an author and have a book you want to put under consideration, um, please uh, Facebook message me or email me uh, at jkling at gmail.com and make sure that it gets submitted for that. Um, talk a little bit about the book itself and, and the, the, the stories that it contains and how they're, they're linked together. Well, they're um, stories that, you know, been publishing, uh, the, the first one of all the stories in the collection was published in 2007. Um, so it's basically, you know, about 15 years of stories. Um, yeah, about 15 years of stories. Um, and they didn't really, you know, I didn't really start out having any kind of connection between them, but I write pretty much just dark science fiction and, you know, dystopian stories. And that's just kind of where my mind goes. So uh, even though I didn't mean them to all kind of be similar in tone or, you know, all disasters, they kind of wound up being that way just because that's my area of interest. So and basically, you know, I've been, you know, and I've been publishing them. The first one in 2007 was published in Clark's World, um, back when Clark's World was very new. Uh, and a lot of them have been in other magazines, other anthologies. Um, four of them have been in Inner Zone. Uh, it's been one of my, you know, most, uh, you know, common markets. But, uh, but yeah, so, I um, mean, you know, I just kind of, it's the, it's the culmination of, you know, what I've been working for in writing for like the past decade or so. How did you become interested in the apocalypse? I mean, how, how, did, how do you think that, where do you think that came from? I mean, I think we all think about it, but. <laughs> uh, uh, just kind of in general pessimism of my character. Um, yeah, this, I, I kind of, you know, you know I, I've always, you know, I, I don't think I'm that much of a downer, but um, I, I do tend to, you know, I, I loved horror growing up and I loved, you know, 1984 and Brave New World and all those kind of like negative dystopia books that everyone reads, uh, you know, and even more, you know, even even more happy authors like Bradbury or something, I still saw like a lot of like the darkness and negativity in them. So I just I've just kind of always been wired to see technology is like you know you know oh this technology is here what terrible things can it do to us? There's a lot of humor sprinkled throughout these stories too, and and so I wonder is there optimism in there as well? Um, do you do you, is there? Yeah, it's definitely not. I, I, I play up how negative they are just because that's, you know, kind of like a marketing thing. But there is a fair amount of humor in the apocalypse. Actually, 
two of the stories in the collection are um, revolve around the same characters, and uh, they're meant to be. So it's basically a world where aliens have uh, abducted uh, 10% of uh, humans, and they've po brain poisoned everybody else on Earth. So everybody else on Earth is kind of like dealing with depression and everything. But they're meant to be really funny stories because the, the narrator of the stories is a first-person narrator, um, and she's very much a uh, scatterbrained, doesn't really know what's going on character, and it's meant to be kind of a humorous take on what if this horrible thing happened to humanity but you know we're all still kind of laughing anyway so so yeah there's definitely humor in there um uh, there's another story in there uh that's uh based around a pokemon go game that destroys the world which is just inherently funny even though the world is destroyed so <laughs> so yeah I, I do try to you know it's kind of I, I never know really but when I'm starting out with a story, I just kind of tend to start with the concept, and often the concept is something that's meant to be ridiculous. Of the stories, what was the most interesting to you? What's the most fun to write or memorable for you? Um, fun to write. Um, the stories I was saying with the character, the characters in the Magic Band um, were a lot of fun to write. Um, I really enjoyed writing the the last book in the in the collection is a uh, is a, a novelette. It's like fourteen thousand words long. Uh, also kind of funny that's based around a um this kind of brain uh brain fog that it affects everybody in the north america simultaneously and uh, uh it, and that one was just kind of like that one kind of took over when i was writing it and just and i'm a very very slow writer but i think i wrote that one in like three days just because it is the the concept really grabbed me um you know See, I would say those those ones tend to be my favorite. And also, I really I really like the um uh, the title story of the collection. Uh, that one was that was not quite as funny, or you know, but it is definitely meant to be. Um, it was definitely one that just came to me, you know, all at once, and just kind of wrote out like really quickly. I think I think my favorite of the stories are the ones that I don't have to fight with and just kind of come out very easily. Right. I'm curious about that because uh, I, I feel like short stories can be all over the map in that way in terms of writing, having written a few myself. Um, it, it can be, they can be either a real struggle or they can come out really quickly. Do you think that the best stories are the ones that you struggle with or the ones that come out easy or is it, is it just sort of all over the map? And I, it's all over the map, but I do think I, you know, tend to like, I think, I don't know if they're the better ones because I definitely have published stories in, you know, big name magazines that have, been a real struggle to write but the ones i like the best are the ones that i remember coming out really easily it's, it's kind of why like every time i i feel like it's really hard to get a story out i'm like oh is this story really i mean i kind of like this story i'm gonna i'm gonna remember how how awful the story was to write kind of thing <laughs> right um so yeah i would say you know the ones that the, the one it's kind of like a, when you know you know kind of story when you you know you know you have like a story that comes out really quickly it, it it's kind of like going to be a real banger versus uh, when it's more of a slog. Now, not that you know, the slog stories can't also be good eventually, but I, I do think that the ones that are easier to write tend to be better in my view. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, like, um, getting off on a tangent here, but when you're struggling with writing, and we all do, um, if you're working on a story and, and, and it's, um, it's not coming easily, do you 
tend to push through until you get something written or do you end in short story projects and how do you decide when it's time to give up on something or when there's still something worth pursuing there? So I never tended to be like, I, I always tended to try to uh, write, push through it and, 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 you know, do the editing and do like the, you know, kind of like force myself to finish every single thing I started. But lately I've not been able to do that just because like, you know, I was in like the last year, year and a half, because I realized that like, you know, some of the stories that I was really pushing on were just, uh, I don't know if you heard that, but my cat just ran, one of our cats just like galloped through the house. So, <laughs> but um, she knows I'm doing something odd and uh, you know, for her and, and, and she freaks out every time. But um, yeah, I've, I've been, so I've been, um, you know, kind of, making myself and it's hard because then it means like i'm like abandoning all these stories but i've been kind of waiting for the because you know again like i've had stories that come recently that are really easy and really um uh, just come out smooth and don't need all that much editing and uh so i've been trying to wait for those to come around uh you can't always do that but right now and because i do work just in short stories and i don't have any kind of novel contract yet um, I, you know, hopefully someday, but um, I will, uh, you know, I, I can kind of afford to wait for a good story to come along. I don't want to say, you know, don't work on something really hard, but, you know, if it's feeling, it, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that when you have more, when you've written a lot of stories, um, and I've, I've published like 40 stories, so, you know, I kind of get a feel at this point, like which stories are kind of worth working on and which ones aren't going to be worth working on. Right. Can you describe or walk us through a process of one of the stories in the, in the book, like sort of where the germ of the idea came from and how it developed? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so usually I will think of like a, a base idea. So I think of like, uh, there's one, you know, I'll just use one of his example. Um, I have a story in there that was published in Clark's world in 2015 uh, where my germ for the idea was a um, uh, universal basic income. So the idea that like everybody gets a paycheck and everybody, you know, for, for, you know, just because like, you know, if we have like a surplus of labor that we're not using, but we, you know, don't have enough jobs for people because of AI, because of uh, increased efficiency and everything, not everybody needs to work, but everybody needs to eat. So they give, you know, the idea is that you give people money um, just to survive. But the idea for behind the story was that people get these, but then we still haven't gotten rid of the American worth ethic ideas. So even though we have the ability to give people money for nothing, uh, they, we still, you know, have to force them to suffer for it. So I um, had this idea, like, well, how would somebody, you know, how would they make this, you know, this idea that, should work and that should you know improve the lives of people terrible you know again you know because i'm, I'm a pessimist because i uh, you know people have to suffer in order to, to get something so um I, I and for me first lines and first paragraphs are really important so i you know molded over for a while and then i had the idea that the main character's wife um is kidnapped by the government to uh, be put into machinery and that doesn't even need to happen, but it's in order to make it so that, oh, well, you have to give back to your country if your country gives something to you kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, and, I, and that was what I actually worked on in 
And I tend to do a lot of my writing process mentally. So, you know, I don't do a lot of notes before I start writing a story. I just kind of think over the first line, think over like the sequence of events so that when I do sit down to write, I don't have to really, I can just kind of start with the story and not have to do a lot of like writing in advance. Right. For most of my stories, I have a vague idea of the ending, um, but I know for that one, I didn't. I had the idea that she'd come back eventually, and spoiler alert, but she doesn't. And that was just kind of something that happened when I was working on the story is like, oh, you know, uh, well, clearly this makes it, you know, doesn't make sense. My original, you know, ending that I had in my head. And that's, again, why I don't write down my ideas before, because I feel, oh, I have to stick to that. So, um so I, I, you know, just kind of discovered that ending through through writing. What's your um, What's your favorite story of this uh, in in this uh, collection? And and can you give a little bit of a summary with it of it without giving too much away? Hmm. Um. Well, they're all they're all my babies. So you know, don't know if I, <laughs> any in particular. Um. I am uh, one of the. Actually, the the last the one the last one to be published that wasn't um, written for the collection or that wasn't an original for the collection was uh, the Pokemon Go story. Mm -hmm. I'm really fond of that one just because uh, I was going to read it today, but it's a bit long for a reading. So, um, you know, I I really like that one just because it's experimental for me. So it's it's a story that's told from ten different points of view characters, and um, nine or ten, I think, but. Um, and uh, I like that one just because I, you know, I really enjoy the idea of like uh, having this concept and have, you know, thinking of the different facets of it. Because I could probably easily turn that into a, into a novel, but, um, you know, it's meant to be a short story. So I just kind of, uh, and creating each of the characters, uh, each of the voices that the characters use. Um, so I would say that one's definitely one of my favorites just because I really enjoy um you know, kind of working outside of, because I tend to write a lot of my stories in uh, first person present tense or third person present tense, and they all kind of like have a similar thing to that. But um, that one, I really like kind of breaking out of that. Right. It has kind of a World War Z flavor in terms of the way that it's written. Um, oh, yeah. it's, uh, it's definitely an inspiration yeah, for the story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for those who've read uh, the Max Brooks. So I'm, I'm curious to get your sense as a short story writer um, about what short stories are like right now generally, where the market is going, where what it's like to be a short story writer these days. Is it getting easier, more difficult? How are short stories evolving right now? Um, I I get this and um, so because I've been publishing for a while and you know uh, have a lot of publication and everything I don't know what it's like to be a newbie starting out. I want to say it's harder just because um, it's all of the, the big magazines are established now. There are new ones coming out all the time, but um, it does feel like a lot of the older ones have kind of crystallized and and you know they're they're not really a lot of them are not accepting you know. Like they, they're always accepting new writers, but it's it's kind of, you know, still a hurdle to get across if you don't have any publications yet. I know that when I, I sold my first story to a magazine, I, well, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea that it was even like meant, you know, like what pro or, or, or you know, non-pro meant in terms of, uh, you know, I was like, oh, well, let's say I'm going to just send this in. And um, I feel like now there's a lot more preparation that needs to be done and a lot more like, 
it feels like branding is becoming important. It feels like I have no idea how important this stuff really is. I don't tend to do a lot of it. I don't, I've actually been really trying to step away from social media, but um, it kind of feels like for a while um, social media was super important and, you know, in a way that it wasn't back in 2007 when I started. Um, uh, but, you know, there, there's always, most magazines still do like publish one or two new writers every time. And there is like, you know, a lot of diversity within the um, the market. Um, so I would say, you know, you know, coming in from where I was, it kind of feel it kind of feels from the outside like it's harder, but it may may not be. Uh, I think I think if you uh, have a, you know, I think if you have a sense of like if you're reading like the stuff that's coming out now, you have a much better ability to to sell and to you know get your stories published. Right. So just kind of reading the big, you know. You know, they they call them, they used to call the print magazines the big three, but it's you know more like with the online stuff, you know now like the big seven or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so where's the best place for people to find your work if they want to read more? Uh, but um, oh, the book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, also online, um, I you know have a. a page on my uh, website with all of the stories that um, are published online there's links to them and then there's links to buy the anthologies that the other ones are in um and uh and you know so yeah um, basically on- online um my uh, website's www.ericasatifka.com so just very simple um and uh you know that's yeah that's the, that's the main thing um i also have a couple other books but uh you know one of them is out of print um but uh, you know, they, you know, there is there there are links to the the stories, the the short stories online. My my, my name is very easy to Google, so <laughs> like the first and, seven pages of Google results for Stefka. <laughs> and uh, what? So, what are you working on right now? What's your current project? Um, mostly short stories. Uh, you know, I've, I have a couple in progress, couple that I've sent out recently. Uh, you know, waiting to hear back. Um, I've been trying to work on longer things. I actually have a novella that I um, finished in 2022 um, that involves characters uh, from those stories I was talking about, the the funny ones about the uh, kind of scatterbrain main character who's fighting against like alien caused depression. Um, so I've written one novella with those characters. I want to write a new series. I'm waiting to hear Waiting to see if I get it published, and you know what the you know what the feel is on other for other people on that before I write more things. But I definitely want to continue those characters, and I have ideas for novels. But right now, I'm mostly like focused on the short stories, uh, just because that you know honestly tends to be where I get most of my interest. Um, you know, I've I've tried to write novels for years and never really got anywhere. But there's the short stories. You know, tend to really connect and sell, and you know the collection was obviously a, a big hit. So, you know, it's kind of sticking with what I feel I'm good at, which is the short stories. And those are constantly in progress. Uh, Patrick told me, you know, he expects another collection from me in a few years, so I, I need to, you know, fill that up. Good. That's Patrick Swenson, Swenson from uh, Fairwood Press, for those who don't know who published it. And Patrick's been a fixture in the Pacific Northwest for a long time and uh, is both a writer and a publisher. Um, great. Well, speaking of what you do best, uh, you mentioned that you'd like to do a reading. Uh, can you do one for us? 
Oh, sure. So I was going to read a, um, a story I published in 2016 in Apex Magazine, um, and it's actually a riff on another story um, that's uh, probably well known to pretty much any genre reader, um, but I won't say which one, but it'll be probably obvious to most people. Uh, the name of the story is uh, After We Walked Away. The regret sits in when they hit Iowa. We shouldn't have left, she says. Knees drawn up to her chin, lower lip trembling. It was a mistake. He can't disagree. He pulls the rental car into a gas station, the front bumper only barely scraping the back of an idling truck. The truck driver, a red-faced, big-bearded man, exits the cab. His massive slab of a hand buries itself in the driver's side window. The shattered window looks like the stars that used to sparkle above the spires of the solved city, except not really as nice. A big mistake, she says. He frowns at her. She is his beloved, but right now she's not helping anything. After a few moments, the truck driver turns and leaves, though not before launching a projectile spit on the destroyed window. He waits until the large ruddy man is long gone, then goes into the station. Hot dogs with cheese. It sounds hearty enough. He fishes the crumpled slips of paper money he'd received from the town alder, alders from his pocket and lays them out on the clerk's counter. Her eyes widen. Mister, you better put that away. He squints at the bills, does the math. Is it not enough? The hot dogs with cheese carry no price tag. The clerk rolls her eyes and slides three of the bills back to him. She pockets the rest. With burning shame, he realizes what he's done, but it's too late to correct it now. He slides the bills back into his pack. He hands one of the hot dogs with cheese to his beloved and takes the other for himself. The unfamiliar food roils in their stomachs, and they both spatter the interior of the car with bits of fatty pork and too sweet soda. They sleep in the car. That was the first day. The first thing you learn when you leave the solved city is the name of the city itself. Its location, its coordinates are cut from your mind like a tumor and replaced with some of the things necessary to survive in the world beyond its gates. The second thing it takes is your name. You can get another one, but it won't be the same. Out of the solved city, your true name becomes unpronounceable. I'm blank, says the nameless woman. She's finally stopped crying four days after they left those gates behind forever, though her stomach still hasn't settled from the alien food. I'm Cypher, says the nameless man. What you take isn't worth nearly as much as what you lose, and everyone knows it. With the rest of the bills, they rent an apartment in a tumble-down building where rats run through the halls every night. There were no rats in the solved city. Lots of peacocks, though, and golden horses with manes that glowed in the sun, and chittering bats that ate right out of your hands. Brain took a job at a titty bar down by the harbor, dancing for drunk men who over her soft brown skin. Sometimes she comes home with beer sloths on her ankles, soaking through her socks. She goes through a lot of socks. Cypher slings sandwiches at a food cart in the local park under the watchful eye of a gruff man whose drawling accent Cypher can barely understand. Cypher teaches himself not to gag at the ba barrels of pickled meat crusted with pink slime and the wafts of odiferous sweat that drip from the gruff man's armpits. Only once does the gruff man accept, attempt conversation. Where are you from, kid? He knows Cypher isn't from here. The man from the solved city has no credit, no government identification, and he must be paid from the till instead of through a seamless, paperless online exchange. I don't know. After that, the conversation stopped, though Cypher still gets his fistful of cash every week. 
The dirt path that leads from the solved city is worn with the footsteps of hundreds of reverse pilgrims, thousands maybe. Almost half the footsteps appear to halt at a point perhaps 50 feet from the Gilded Gates where they circle back toward the city where they belong. But there's no getting back once you've left. There are more corpses on the path than you expect there to be, desiccated by the heat of the sun. Empty eye sockets baking, worms in some of them, mouths outstretched toward the cruel outdoors. The solved city is temperate, but the land around it is not. Maybe it's in Arizona, Blank says, looking at a map spread out in the pockmarked floor of their apartment. New Mexico? No, Safer says, shaking his head. He's seen photographs of those desert lands, and they are nothing like the land that surrounds the solved city. But it has to be somewhere, she cries out. The map is pimpled with likely locations marked out in pink and yellow highlighter. It exists. Of course it exists. We were there. We were born there. He outlines a highway in yellow. We're so close. She hates the children because they remind her of that child. They crowd the outside of Blankensafer's apartment building, the children, squatting amid the discarded condoms and half-rotted rat corpses. He's learned to give them small trinkets, a strap of food, a bit of lint, pennies that have been through the dryer. They snatch the offering from his hands like greedy birds, and in return, don't bother him too much when he comes back to the apartment from another long shift. She isn't as charitable. Look at those things, she says, peering down at the street through a slit in the blinds. The abandoned playground across the street is full of spindly children who cavort on the rusted equipment until the drug dealers drive them out around dusk. Little animals, they barely even know where they are. They're not animals, but he knows, he knows that she's not talking about these children. She's talking about that child. That child doesn't know where it is. It has no idea that it lives in a vault five stories below the central plaza of the solved city. It is a milk-white little bug left so long in the vault that its eyes have mostly ceased to work. It knows only a few phrases like fuck you and nasty thing and you little shit. Sometimes it repeats the words and the city alders wash its mouth out with soap. It has no gender because that would increase its humanity and decrease the potency of the violence magic. It has no name because then it might be a person. It has no wants, no interests, no friends, and no family. It's what keeps the solved city afloat and it's the reason they left. When you turn 17 in the solved city, the alders show you the child. It's an event like your first period or the first time you climb by yourself onto the back of one of the golden stallions that roam the streets. The alders take you into city hall. You've been there before on countless school trips. They lead you to a perfectly normal steel door with no markings on it. Its lack of markings is a marking. You are led downwards, all the way downwards. You've never been so far underground. As you descend, you start to hear voices. You feel cold in a way you've never felt before. Just inside the edges of your vision, you see a movement as if from an animal. Inside, on a pad of filthy burlap, sits a child of perhaps seven. Its skin is the color of new paper. One of its arms has been ripped off at the elbow, leaving a rotted stump. When it sees the group of visitors, it soils itself audibly. Look at the child, the alderman says. He suffers so you can live. The teenager who will grow up to be Cypher feels his lunch of roasted pheasant and heirloom tomatoes rise in his throat. He forces it back down and makes himself look at the child. Around him, he can hear his classmates shifting uncomfortably. Your lives are pleasant. You know that out there, the alderman continues, not having to qualify the out there, there are things worse than this. Sweatshops, gangs, mass murder. We only have this child. 
and we take care of it in our own way. That's more than they do out there. He passed the child on its head, mussing its sparse, limp hair. Cypher looks around, his breath catching. He wants to run up there, tear the shirt from his back, and wrap the child inside, carrying it away from this horrible place. But something he can't identify holds him back. Most of his classmates are nodding. He keeps his head still, his mouth closed. An older woman en enters the ill-lit basement. She's someone Cypher has seen before, a kindly, fair-haired merchant who never has a harsh word for anyone. He likes her. But now her eyes have a different cast to them. She takes a switchblade from the depths of her robe. You fucking piece of shit, screams the older woman in an earthly tone as she deftly slices one of the child's fingers off, producing a gush of sick, sickly pinkish blood. Cypher's stomach lurches and he moans, er earning him a sharp look from the older woman. The boy at Cypher's side faints, his head coming down hard on Cypher's shin. This is for you, the older woman says. She picks the child up from its burlap mat and shakes it until his teeth rattle. Suddenly, she drops it and becomes calm, slipping into a choreographed speech she's recited countless parades of adolescence. Paradise always comes at a price. Here in this small city, we torture not the many, only the one. We have concentrated the suffering to a single point so that all of you may live in peace. There is no other way, do you see? Somebody must suffer, and this child knows nothing else. We give it purpose, the alderman says. He removes a small medical kit from his pocket and dresses the child's wound. The child needs us. Truly, it's no worse off at our hands. No, Cypher thinks. No, that's wrong. I have to help it. But what can he do? They won't let him snatch the child and spirit it away, and he can't bring himself to attack either of the alders. He pushes the unconscious boy from him with the toe. Suddenly, the older woman drops her blood-spattered knife and stares at the teenager who will be Cypher. Are you going to take his place? She points at Cypher, jabbing her finger into his chest until he stumbles backward. Just come up here right now, kid. She flicks her wrist at the filthy corner where the child lays. Cypher's face burns with shame, and he shrinks at her touch. He starts to choke out a reply, but by the time he can speak, she's already halfway down the line of onlookers, asking them the same question. It's just another part of the routine. The alderman claps his hands, calling them all back to attention. We have a gift here in the Solve City, a precious resource. See it. Know it exists. Remember it. Are there any questions? There are, but nobody says a word. The child picks up its severed finger and pops it into its own toothless maw. Blinks out of the house tonight. She's often out of the house anymore. Cypher eases himself into the recliner they pulled from a dumpster. It smells like hot dogs with cheese. His body hurts down to the bone. He pops the top off of, beer, off of a beer, which is far inferior to the elixirs they had in the Solve City, but it'll do. The maps remain on the coffee table. They haven't looked at the maps in weeks. He dozes, awakening at some indistinct point when Blaine comes to the door. Her hair is wet and matted from the rain. Where were you, he asks, though he doesn't really care. Blaine's life is her own to live. Out. Is that guilt he senses in her lovely, sylph-like face? What could Blaine possibly be guilty of? He shrugs it off. I didn't make anything for dinner. That's all right. I'm not hungry. In fact, she looks radiant. Or at least better than Cypher, anyway. Well, I am. He heaves himself in the recliner and, and goes to the kitchen. He opens a can of ravioli laced with unpronounceable chemicals. 
Safer gagged as he eats. Even after six months away, he's still not used to the food here. Blink drops her purse on the coffee table, right over the marked up maps. He frowns a little at this. After she leaves the next morning, there's a red spot in the middle of Wyoming. He stares at this spot a long time. When you leave the present order of the Solved City for the sun-blasted world beyond, you are not the only one who has changed. The minds of the one you leave behind are similarly erased. Cypher thinks about this. He knows there are people he went to school with who suddenly do, uh, didn't exist. But he, there are no, he knows there are people he went to school with who suddenly didn't exist, but he doesn't recall their faces. He doesn't recall their voices or their names or mannerisms. There is a lack here, soon to be filled up, like a hole in sand before the tide rolls in. It doesn't make you sad, this lack. It's just there. Cypher is glad that his parents don't remember him. The solved city wouldn't be much of a paradise if parents longed for their lost children, if lovers were separated because one of them couldn't stand the existence of the child and the other one could stand the existence of the child and the other one couldn't. Cypher, of course, remembers everything. Once, when they were still living in the solved city, Blank asked Cypher if the child's mother remembered it, but she thought about it at all. That should have been the first sign that there was something wrong with Blank. On a day when they're both free from work, Cypher convinces Blank to sit down in front of the maps and keep searching. They spend a few hours drawing lines around the, across the crumpled gas station map when Blank starts screaming and upends the table. It wasn't worth it. Do you want to know what I saw today? A dead kid, frozen in the alley. She'd been there for days, Cypher. The rats had eaten her nose. Cypher blinks. He doesn't know what to believe. Did you call the police? Like they'd give a shit. She starts to pace, running her hands through her black hair. Ten people were killed last week all across the city. Gangs, drugs, beatings. There was nothing like this where we came from. Nothing. No, there was something worse. She laughs darkly. Was there? At least we kept it contained. At least we harnessed it somehow. The child, it suffered for us. What do these people suffer for? Safer tries to think of an answer that won't stoke Blank's anger. Freedom? Yes, the freedom to live in a shithole. She wheels around and slams the door to their bedroom. Safer waits a few beats and then rummages through Blank's purse. He needs money for takeout. It's not just free here. Inside he finds money and also a nose wrapped in clear plastic. He pockets it, leaving the cash. It's not that the gentle folk of the Solve City don't think about the child. In fact, they think about the child a lot. They think about the child every time they take the solar-powered tram to the Central Square. They think about the child every time they brush their golden, golden stallions. The child shows up in their dreams. Sometimes it appears whole and happy. Sometimes it appears that it is, as it is, mangled and full of one-way hate. What the people of the Solve City don't do, what they have never done, is talk about the child. Once you leave the child's oubliette, the existence of the child becomes a conversation you hold with yourself alone. You live well for the child. Because this life is terrible beyond the comprehension of any person in the Solve City, and not beyond the comprehension of those outside, your life must be wonderful. To make the child suffering worth anything at all, you must live, and you do. This is the violence magic. This is the city's and the child's gift to you. Anyone can visit the child, assuming they don't try to go outside of the normal city hall business hours. You can just walk right on inside, but why would you want to? The day after their argument, Cypher follows Blank down to the harbor. The titty bar where she works is lit up with Christmas lights half burned out and flickering. He doesn't go inside. 
He doesn't want to see blank like she is at work, her skin splashed with beard and gulped with cigarette smoke. He doesn't even want to be here at all, but he has to know. When she leaves, he follows her through the streets of this new shithole that is now their home. She doesn't go to the bus stop. She slips into a warehouse. Cypher waits five beats and goes inside. It's black as pitch in there, black as Blank's hair. He used to love burying his face in that hair, breathing in the essence of her. Blank won't let him touch her anymore. Honey, he says. He takes his cell phone out of his pocket and turns on the flashlight app. The warehouse is like so many warehouses outside of the solved city. It hasn't held actual products in at least 20 years and is now home to rats, mice, spiders, termites, stray cats, and occasionally people. No people here now, though. That's good. Safer continues to plumb the warehouse's depths, swinging the flashlight before him like a beacon. Blank, he says, calling out her false name a little louder. Down one of the narrow corridors, there's a cry. A cat? Does Blank have a stray cat down there? It's his only lead, so Safer follows it where it goes. It leads to an unmarked door frosted with rust. Cypher pushes all his weight against the door. Blank is there, a bat in her hands. A cage is also there. So is a child. During their long ride from the solved city, at a flea-infested Motel 6 in Moline, Illinois, Cypher laid awake. Beside him, Blank was locked in an easy slumber, regret causing her limbs to seize and twitch. Had leaving been his decision, or hers, or both of theirs together? Certainly, she had been more immediately contemptuous of the violence magic that held the solved city together. She hadn't wanted to leave at first. She'd wanted to tear the whole system down. He can't imagine his life without her, but if he'd stayed behind, surely he'd still have been happy. Surely the lack that appeared after the disappearance of other emigrants would have showed up for her too, until eventually she'd be a shadow of a memory, and then not even that. He'd have found another lover, a woman or man who managed to live happy despite the violence magic, or if the science was true because of it. She's worth it, he thought on a cold night as arguments echoed across the motel's parking lot. Isn't she? She is. She has to be. He swings the door shut and vomits all the contents of his stomach across the concrete floor. She doesn't come out to see if he's all right. When he feels able to face it again, he pushes the door back open and she's still there, above the iron cage, the metal bar in her hands, metal bat in her hands. What are you doing? Cypher finds some reserve of strength hidden like lint in the bottom of a pocket. He lurches forward and wrests the bat away from blank. There's hair on it. What are you fucking doing? Her mouth gapes open. She doesn't have a response. I'm going to tell someone about this, but how can he? When he knows what they'll do to her in prison, this naive woman of the solved city, not to mention that she makes four-fifths of their combined rent. I'm making people happy. She spits at the mostly dead child in the cage and stalks out, slipping only slightly on the upchuck sandwich fixings at the door's threshold. Viper looks down at the mess in the cage. Whereas the child beneath City Hall radiated a bouquet of emotions, from fear to hate to perplexity, this child serves only terror. Terror of blank. Terror of him. It won't survive long, so he does the merciful thing. When he returns to their apartment, most of her belongings, not that there were ever many, are gone. So is she. Before long, so is he. He rents a house with two guys from Craigslist who seem to tolerate him okay. They don't ask him many questions. He doesn't ask them any questions at all. He takes a normal name like Tom or Mitch. 
Maybe that was his real name back in the Solve City. It's definitely his real name now. He doesn't look for the city, although he thinks about it every moment of his life for the rest of his life. He doesn't look for blank. He thinks about blank less often than he thinks about the Solve City. There's still too much. That wound doesn't glaze over, and there's still a lack. He grows old. He moves to a different city, one less pockmarked by violence and ruin. But when you come from the Solve City, any violence is too much. Any violence except that visited upon the child, the child that makes the magic happen. Ten years later, after he has his own child with a woman he met in the elevator at his new job in his new city, he walks out into the desert and lets the sand erase his path. That's great. Thank you. And uh, I probably could tell what story that's riffing on. Um, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name <laughs> of it, but uh, the Urshan <laughs> story, uh, uh, the ones who walk from away from Omelas. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's right. based around the idea of uh, what if people who walk away from Omelas regret it, try to go back, then try to make their own Omelas. So mm -hmm. that's another one of those ideas that I had, you know, kind of, you know, oh, I, and I didn't think I could do better. I don't think I can do better than this story, but I kind of want to explore, you know, this concept a bit. Thank you, Erica, for joining us and for giving us such great insights into your stories. And uh, and let me recommend again in the, this as much as I can, this book, um, How to Get to Apocalypse and Other Disasters. It's really mm -hmm. a great read. It's it's very, very different from what you're going to read, I think, anywhere else. <laughs> and the stories, there's 23 stories, and they're just all very different in, in tone and flavor. And, uh, yeah, I just highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Endeavor Award Podcast. To learn more, join our Facebook group, visit our webpage, or our Patreon, all of which are listed in the show notes. See you next time.